We will spend eternity with hearts that are filled with a type of love and satisfaction in the one whom we are with. But that love and that satisfaction and that deep affection will be mingled together with a type of sinless terror that will keep us in awe for all eternity of the one in whose presence we are. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, Why do the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So the question that we begin by asking is, what in the world was Peter thinking by sort of babbling on about making these three tents or tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah? What in the world was he thinking? Well, the next verse lets us know what he was thinking. The next verse lets us know that he wasn't thinking. He was talking without thinking because he didn't know what to say because we're told he was terrified. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he was so terrified that he is just babbling on. So there are, as we probably are familiar with this, there are different people, different kinds of people in the world. There are some kinds of people that when you don't know what to say, you don't say anything. Not knowing what to say, you keep your mouth shut. A lot of people are like that. Other people are not that way, not knowing what to say or not being sure what to say. They might try to say some things, and that's another category of people. Peter falls into the third category. No matter what the situation, he's got something to say. He's never at a loss for words. And so not ever being at a loss for words, out comes these words, why don't we prepare three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So not really knowing what he's saying, he's just sort of babbling on, which by the way, is a response that we would have totally expected. We would totally expect a response such as this. If this is an account written by men, then we would expect some sort of response from Peter, like something more appropriate. Lord, we are here to worship you and behold your glory. Something like that. But this is not an account written by men. This is an account written by God. And so the fact of the matter is that the scriptures show us again and again that when people come into contact with sinless beings, particularly when they come in contact with the visible Christ, 
They oftentimes stumble over their words or stumble over their actions and they're not sure what to do. Think of Peter's, instant, uh, Peter's experience himself in Luke chapter 5. In this episode, this was when there was the, they were out fishing all night and, and then Jesus the next morning says, put the net on the other side of the boat. And they sort of mockingly, sarcastically say, well, okay, and they do that. And then they can't pull the, the nets in because of the fish. And Peter, not knowing what else to say, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Reminds us, of course, of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when he sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of sinful lips, and I'm surrounded by people of sinful lips. So oftentimes that is the type of experience that we see. We see, for example, the Apostle John twice in the Revelation fall down before an angel to worship the angel, and twice he has to be rebuked to say, Don't do that, for I am just like you. We worship him. So this is a response that's consistent on the, part of, on the part of Peter. He's not sure what to say, so out comes this. So what is it that's, what's behind these words about building a tabernacle or, or three tabernacles or three tents? Well, we're not told, but we can speculate just a little bit about what Peter may have been thinking of. Perhaps he was making a connection to what's known of as the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. It's a festival that was a recurring festival each year for the Jewish people. It uh, is commanded in Leviticus 25. And the Festival of Tabernacles is a week-long festival. It's a joyous occasion, but it's a week-long festival in which what they're commemorating is the exodus from slavery of the Jewish people. So there may be a connection here because what was Moses talking to Jesus about? He was talking about his exodus his exodus of the people, but Moses himself was the one who led the first exodus. So perhaps Peter's making a connection. Here's Moses. Oh, let's connect this with the festival of, of, of booths, so the, the festival of tabernacles, because part of the festival of tabernacles was that for one week, the people would live in these sort of makeshift tents or these makeshift booths. It was like a week-long camping trip. It was a joyful time for them. And so perhaps Peter's making a connection. Here's Moses. They're talking about the Exodus. Let's make booths and celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Perhaps that's the connection that he's making. Or perhaps maybe Peter is thinking, we're here on this mountain. Here's Moses. Here's Elijah. Let's just set up sort of a messianic headquarters here. Let's just make these booths or these, temp, these tabernacles, these tents for all three of you. And this can kind of be a messianic headquarters for us, a center of operations for the Messiah. Perhaps that's what he's thinking. Or perhaps he's thinking more in the line, along the lines of, you know, this is an, an absolutely breathtaking moment. Let's do something to keep Elijah and Moses here because I don't want them to leave. This is a wonderful moment. Here's all three of you. Let's just make these tabernacles so that nobody has to leave. Perhaps he's thinking, I just don't want this to end. Or perhaps it's some combination of all of the above. We don't know because we're not told. But what we are told is that his response was wrong. We're told that in the following when the voice comes out of the cloud and there comes that voice that says, this is my beloved son in Matthew's account, in whom I'm well pleased. And then God says, listen to him. Do you hear a little bit of rebuke in there? Do you hear a little bit of the father saying, shut up, Peter, just stop talking. This is not a time to talk. This is a time to listen. So a little bit of a rebuke there for Peter, which by the way, puts Peter in a very special category of people because Peter has now been rebuked in the eternal, never ending words of scripture by God himself twice in the span of a week. 
So he puts him in a very special category of people. You might feel like that. Some, you, might, you, ever, you ever feel like that? You ever feel like that God just has nothing but rebukes for you? That every time you go to his word and you open his word, it just seems that every time it's addressing something in your life that you know that you need to deal with and you just feel like that that's got what God has for you. If you ever feel like that, I think all Christians do feel like that from time to time. If you ever feel like that, then you're in pretty good company because Peter himself must have felt really rebuked by this point. So this is the words of the father to, to Peter. Peter, stop talking. That's not what we need to do right now. Listen to my son. We'll come back around to that a little bit later. So there's this response from Peter that is in some way expected, but then there is another part of this response that is, I would say, unexpected or should be unexpected. Look at his words once again in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. Now, wait a minute. That's the first time we've read this word in Mark's gospel, Rabbi. Nobody has called Jesus Rabbi in Mark's gospel yet. And no one will call him rabbi again except for two other occasions. Peter will call him rabbi once again in chapter 11. And then, well, let's look at that one first in chapter 11, Mark, Mark chapter 11, verse 21 in your notes. Here's the next occasion that Jesus is called rabbi. And notice the context. Peter remembering said to him, rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered and died. You see the context there? You see the context of Peter saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what you said yesterday has actually happened. Can you believe that? You cursed this fig tree yesterday and it actually withered and died. What do you know? Do you see the context of unbelief? You see the context of miscomprehension and the failure to comprehend? So then this word will come once again. Jesus will once again be called rabbi in chapter 14. Notice the context here. And when he, meaning Judas Iscariot, came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is only called Rabbi in contexts of unbelief and traitor being being, uh, turned over. Only in context of unbelief and disbelief is Jesus called Rabbi. Now, couple that together with the fact that Peter just called Jesus the Christ. And so we should ask, Peter, hang on, you just called him the anointed Christ of God. And now you've reverted to rabbi? Why now the rabbi thing? Now, rabbi was a title of respect in this culture. And Matthew will use that word. He will will narrate instances of followers of Jesus calling him rabbi in which the intended meaning is this meaning of respect and honoring. For example, think of Mary when she discovers the empty tomb and then she discovers Jesus and she says, rabbi. But Matthew's writing to a different audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Mark here reserves the word rabbi for those instances of particular unbelief and particular misconception. And so he says, rabbi. It is good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So we'll circle back around to the Moses-Elijah thing. Verse 6 now. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So right there in that statement, they were terrified. They were struck with terror. They were filled with terror. Let's make special note of that. And the reason that we want to make note of this is just let's just remind ourselves, Peter, James, and John, why are they here? 
Are they here? Are they witnessing what's going on between the Father and the Son? Are they witnessing this because they're looking upon something they're not supposed to see? Are they sort of like peering over the wall or looking around the corner, trying to get an eyeful of something that they're not supposed to see? They are here because Jesus invited them here. They are here because Jesus took them up the mountain because the Father wanted them to see this. And upon seeing this, they are struck with terror. So the point here is not that Peter, James, and John are terrified of what they see because they're enemies of God. Because they are standing before God as people that are out of favor with God or something of that nature. They are not terrified of God because they're terrified that they're witnessing something they're not supposed to witness. They are terrified. They are struck with terror because they're in the presence of divinity. They're in the presence of sinlessness. And that strikes terror into their hearts. So let's make a good note of this because this runs completely counter to much of our modern perception of what it will be like to be in the presence of God. We have found it to be something of a a popular idea today to think of that day when we're in God's presence for eternity as something along the lines of what I heard it described this way uh, a a couple weeks ago, something along the lines of hanging out with Jesus for eternity. That sort of way of thinking of being in the presence of God in such a trivial, nonchalant manner. When the scriptures show us over and over that when we're in the presence of God, we will be struck with a type of terror. I don't mean terror in the sense of dread. I don't mean terror in the sense of being terrified for one's life. I mean terror in the sense of being in the presence of a holy God. We will spend eternity with hearts that are filled with a type of love and satisfaction in the one whom we are with. But that love and that satisfaction and that deep affection will be mingled together with a type of sinless terror that will keep us in awe for all eternity of the one in whose presence we are. And we see an example of this as Peter, James, and John, who were invited up the mountain, who are Jesus's three closest followers. They are struck with terror to be in his presence. And that is indicative of a human being in the presence of our maker, our Lord and our God. We will not be in any way trivial or nonchalant in his presence. I often hear people talk in that manner. In fact, I read not too long ago a blog written by an atheist in which these are his words. He said that when he meets the Christian God, the Christian God will have a lot of explaining to do. He went on to say, if this Christian God is going to judge me, then, well, I'm going to judge him too. And if I'm going to spend eternity with him, he's got a lot of explaining to do. And that is indicative of the thought patterns of a lot of people who don't understand the holiness of the God that the scriptures speak to us of. We will not explain ourselves in front of him. We will not ask him to explain himself. We will not judge him. In his presence, we will keep our mouths shut and we will fall on our face. This is the the consistent testimony of scripture. And so let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Here we see as as God's going to rebuke him. Listen to my son. 
Stop talking, Peter. Listen to my son. What we see is Peter still is not yet grasping what Jesus wants him to grasp. Because in building these three tents, so to speak, in essence, what he's still proposing is to deter Christ from the cross. To deter him from his journey to the cross. Let's stay here a while. Let's sort of set up camp here for a while. Whether it's the festival of tabernacles or whether it's just a desire to remain here with Moses and Elijah. Either way, this is a deterrence from the cross. And the Father will have nothing to do with that. Neither will the Son. Nothing will deter Christ from the cross. So he says, we didn't know what to say for they were terrified. Now verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. So first of all, the cloud, this cloud that comes over them. We read in Scripture quite a lot about clouds. I don't know if you've ever made note, sort of a mental note as you're reading through the Scriptures of just how often we read about clouds. They're all over the place, Old Testament and New. And it's interesting to me to sort of follow, if you will, a theology or a doctrine of the clouds in the Scripture because we could actually trace that and we could see Oftentimes what God is doing with clouds in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, there's, there's lots of purposes that God performs through clouds. Clouds in the Old Testament, sometimes they represent the presence of God. Sometimes they represent the protection of God. Sometimes they represent the authority of God. God will sometimes speak out of the cloud in an authoritative manner. God will sometimes use the cloud or a type of cloud to protect His people. Sometimes they represent a barrier between mankind and God. Sometimes they represent God's abode. Sometimes they represent the transcendence of God. So they they represent a lot of things in the Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, we find just as many clouds. But we find in the New Testament that now the significance has all become one. Because in the New Testament, the presence of clouds always signifies the return of Christ. Clouds always mean the return of Christ in the New Testament. Now, I know just a little bit ago, we sang that song that we all love, The Unclouded Day. And I love that song. It's a great song. I I chose it for this message. But in a sense, that does sort of miss the purpose, doesn't it? Because we're not waiting for an unclouded day. If we understand how the Scriptures use clouds, specifically the New Testament, to teach us of that day in which He will return for His people and how that is always associated with clouds, then I tell you, I'm looking for a cloudy day because it's a cloudy day on which He will return for us. 